Hello, everybody, and welcome to Friend Diagram, the podcast where two friends catch up and find common ground between their favorite media. I'm Remy. I'm Kat. And today we'll be comparing notes on the movies Dunkirk and The Ghost of Mrs. Muir. Nope, that's not what it's called. It's not? Nope, it's The Ghost <laughs> and Mrs. Muir. Oh, I can't keep it in. Uh, cool. Biffed it. <laughs> I like it. And that's all we've got today, everyone. <laughs> the end. All right. Um, so since I went first last week, I was thinking mm-hmm. if you wanted to go first this week, that would be good. Yes. So this week I chose to talk about the 2017 movie Dunkirk. Uh, It's directed by Christopher Nolan, of course. Um, Good old Chris Nolan. And it is my favorite Nolan movie, actually. Um, I don't know what that says about me exactly. I think maybe that I'm boring, but I can't deny it is by far my favorite Christopher Nolan film Um, as of now, as of April 2022, it's my fave. So Christopher Nolan did The Batmans, the not The Batman, mm-hmm. but... The the Dark Knight trilogy. The mm-hmm. Dark Knight trilogy. Um, he also did Tenet and... Yes. What else? Inception? Inception, Memento. Oh, okay. Um, the Prestige. He's done a bunch of stuff. Yeah. I mean, I would say that Dunkirk is my favorite out of all of the movies we've mentioned. Mm-hmm. So, I chose the film Dunkirk because um, it recently got put back on Netflix or was put on Netflix for the first time, and so that just kind of put it in my mind, and it's just kind of a film I think about Mm semi-frequently. So I went back and watched it again, and one of the things that I think is excellent about it is that It gets better every time I watch it, and not a lot of movies have that quality, but all the movies that I love do have that quality, Mm -hmm. and I think that's not only, like, the mark of a really good film, it's particularly relevant for Christopher Nolan films, because Mm -hmm. they're often complicated in terms of structure, or presentation, or just have a lot of information to dissect and possibly interpret Mm -hmm. and what i like about dunkirk is that you can fully comprehend what's happening it's not a (laughs) futile exercise yeah um you just need to understand how the um three simultaneous timelines are remember when Uh, i missed that yeah yeah for Uh, context we did like a viewing a viewing party in your backyard for fun during the uh, initial phase of the pandemic we had friday night movie club in your backyard mm -hmm. and i think it was my week that i chose dunkirk Uh and um did we pause the film for me we to explain did, that? We did, because I, like, missed, like, the orientation right. to the timelines. I, like, completely yeah. did not understand, and I thought everything was happening on the same mm-hmm. scale, and it was very mm-hmm. confusing. <laughs> so we had to stop halfway through. It is subtle. It's just, like, um, brief text on the screen. Mm-hmm. So you have your three different timelines. You start off um, on the mole, 
which is basically the beachfront mm-hmm. of Dunkirk, um, which is across the channel from England. Dunkirk is in France, and it's where uh, a bunch of British and French troops are surrounded by uh, the German forces that are invading France. Um, because this is a depiction of a real-life event that took place in May of 1940. Mm-hmm. And so, right, so your first timeline is on the mole, and that's taking place over the course of one week. Mm-hmm. So it says one, the mole, one week. And then your second timeline is the sea, and that's centered around this family that is on a boat um, That's my favorite that has... timeline. Oh, God, I love that fucking timeline. Oh, my God. <laughs> it's my favorite. Um, Those characters are so good. I know. Oh, my God. Sorry. It's incredible. <laughs> I didn't mean to uh, interrupt. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> it's okay. No. It's my favorite. Uh, I feel exactly the same way. Um, that takes place over the course of one day, and it's this father, played by Mark Raylance, who is, oh, my God, he's my favorite. Um, person in this film he is incredible like incredible like just perfectly balanced stoic yet sensitive and empathetic dad energy Mm -hmm. it's like it is an impeccable performance Mm -hmm. yeah it's like peak i wish you know wish that guy was my dad (laughs) love that um it's him and his son and his son's friend and their private vessel, their private boat that they own, has been requisitioned by the Royal Navy to help um, the troops escape from Dunkirk, essentially, and bring them back across the channel to the UK. And Mark Raylance's character, he basically is like, you know what? I'd rather just do this myself. And so he and his son and his son's friend, George, who makes the last minute decision to jump on the boat too and help they all go. They set off into the sea to go help everyone in Dunkirk themselves. And it's just, it's absolutely beautiful. And then the final timeline is the air. Mm -hmm. And that is the one that's following. I think they're um, Spitfire pilots. Mm -hmm. I hope that's the correct plain name um but that is you start off with like um three royal air force pilots Mm -hmm. that are all traveling to dunkirk as well and they're kind of providing air support to the naval vessels in and around that area because there's been very heavy bombing from german aircrafts and also from german u-boats um and so that's the timeline where you have Tom Hardy and Jack Loudon and Michael Caine. He's only appears in voice, but they're the three pilots and their time course is over one hour. Mm-hmm. So they um, um, they have a jam-packed hour, basically. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so basically over the course of the film, you're seeing all these different events taking place for all these different people on these different timescales and they're intercut together so that um, eventually many of them start intersecting and cross-cutting in meaningful ways. Mm -hmm. 
and basically it's all centered around people on like British and French soldiers on the mall that are trying to evacuate, but they're just being thwarted at every turn, mm-hmm. like constantly. Like they think they're about to leave and go be safe because they're all sitting ducks out on the beach. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something happens and they're back where they started. And it's like completely demoralizing. Mm-hmm. But every time it seems like something like a, an escape avenue has been presented like you like the the score picks up Hans Zimmer's score mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is like one of those anxiety producing <laughs> scores of all time mm-hmm. kicks in and you're like oh my god we like we gotta get on this boat or like we gotta get this boat running or like yeah. we gotta get out of this boat because the boat is sinking and it's a very like it's a very visceral film in that way because there's a lot of urgency mm-hmm. uh very frequently. I have a question, actually, that mm-hmm. you might know the answer to. This is not completely related to Dunkirk as a film, but one thing mm-hmm. that I've noticed is that a lot of directors tend to use the same composers and like um, in their films, right? So I think Hans Zimmer mm-hmm. also did the soundtrack, or not soundtrack, the score for Inception. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Um, I think so. And I also think for Interstellar as well. Yeah. And I've also noticed in... Can you remind me how to say Denise's last name? Villeneuve. Villeneuve. In his movies, there's like a very specific sound. I haven't looked at if he uses the same composer, but it's definitely a stylistic choice. And I mm-hmm. don't know how that works in the industry is are they like pals <laughs> i don't know well it's funny you mention them specifically because hans zimmer did do the score for dune oh okay which was directed by denny mm-hmm. and chris nolan i think was kind of upset because he wanted hans to do the score for tenet at that which was going mm-hmm. on at the same time production wise but Hans Zimmer is a huge fan of the book mm-hmm. Dune and was like, I cannot miss out on this opportunity yeah. to do the score for this new film adaptation, this current film adaptation for Dune. And so he turned down Chris, who mm-hmm. is his like, longtime collaborator, to work with Denis. Mm-hmm. Um, I know this because Hans did a, an episode of the podcast Song Exploder about... Oh the dune score Uh and explain that scenario and i think it's all it's fine it's not like an actual (laughs) conflict (laughs) i don't think no but um yeah i think people do form attachments uh, to collaborators in that way Mm -hmm. but i think it also could just be that like these are top tier directors and he's a top tier yeah composers you know composers so it just makes sense that they would hire the best person yeah it's probably a mix yeah i i'm kind of curious at the conversations that are had when someone is developing a score for a film and i'd be curious to be a fly on the wall for those conversations and how directors know what kinds of sounds to suggest and get their meaning across because it's so effective in um, nolan's movies and also 
um, mm-hmm. Denise movies. It's just so effective at like setting that mood, even though it's not mm-hmm. like constant. And I find that both directors also do a very good job of using silence very stylistically as well. Mm-hmm. I just find yeah. music and movies very fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really interesting YouTube video about the score for Dunkirk mm. and the specific I don't know. I I'm not a very technical music or audio person, mm. so I don't remember what it's called, but there's basically an auditory illusion that Hans Zimmer takes advantage of and incorporates into the score in Dunkirk that engenders that sense of urgency and i think vox i want to say vox explained i think made the video about it it's a there's a specific name for this effect um that um he used so there is like lots of intention like you're saying yeah in definitely these auditory tools that they're using but to your point about the silence Something else that I really love about this movie that I was thinking about as I was watching it this most recent time Mm -hmm. is that it is the dialogue is very sparse, Mm. Um, especially in the beginning of the film. Like Mm -hmm. there's barely more than a handful of words spoken for a long time. Yeah. And for that reason um, or in association with that, it is jam-packed with visual information. Mm. It's like, it's just such a good example of exposition that is completely visual Mm -hmm. in nature. Like you're watching exchanges between people that has no dialogue, but you can see that, you know, you can read everyone's intentions and you can just still get a sense of exactly what's happening. Mm -hmm. And it gives you... A window into the the desperation of these people that are trying to be evacuated and that are just like at wit's end because they have nowhere safe to go yeah. and I sh- uh, I just love the way that the story unfolds. It's just the richness of the visual information is really appealing to me. I like that you can get a lot of information just from how effectively the visuals are designed and that it's a simple enough concept that someone like me can understand it because I know almost nothing about history. So I was a little apprehensive going into watching Dunkirk, um, but I found it extremely enjoyable because I love a war movie that can be told in a very logical fashion without exposition dumps. And I would say that another movie like this is 1917. Oh, I loved 1917 because it was told in a way that it was told in very linear fashion following. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's probably the most linear movie that could possibly exist. By design. (laughs) I think that Dunkirk also did it very well with the three distinct Mm -hmm. subplots, you know? You're right. Because, like, very much like 1917, like, everyone's motivations are very clear. It's like, Mm -hmm. this person is either trying to escape and evacuate safely, or this person is trying to help with the evacuation. Mm -hmm. Like, it is very straightforward and clear-cut. Yeah. Um, Which is good, because um, 
I went through like a big U.S. military history phase mm-hmm. <laughs> when I was like 13 or 14. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I go through a lot of phases <laughs> of my interests and that was a big one. Mm-hmm. So I do know like a fair amount about U.S. military history, but because this was before the U.S. even entered World War II. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we don't learn about other countries in yeah. history class in the American school system. Like, I didn't know about this particular battle or conflict at all. I didn't. You know? I didn't. And that's what made it so exciting uh, when mm-hmm. you get to the end. Because I didn't know what happened. Yeah. Oh, God. The end. It's all so good. But, um, yeah, before we get to the the end, um, we were talking about visual information mm-hmm. and um, how, like, the visual exposition feels very natural. But I also want to, like, specifically point out the cinematography mm. is phenomenal. It's beautiful. The shots are so good. And um, the director of photography is, I don't know how to pronounce his name exactly. I want to say it's Hoyt Van Hotema. I don't know. Sorry if that's not right. But he just, oh man, he did a great job. And what would you say is like the most iconic, like when you think about the movie, what's the most iconic visual for you well that's a good question i saw this in theaters and i'm oh man what an experience that is such a good movie to see in a theater Mm -hmm. with the full audio and huge screen it's amazing i think i when i think of dunkirk i think a lot of about a lot of the aerial shots because Mm -hmm. those are so striking but there's one shot in particular that I paused the movie and went back and watched again Mm -hmm. when I was watching it this week because it was just visually very striking Mm -hmm. but completely encapsulated what I think one of the main themes of the movie was. And it's the shot, it's early on, and it's in the sea timeline Mm -hmm. where you're following the family on their boat and they have um, started making progress toward Dunkirk. And you see this shot where you're looking at the profile of the boat from the side. It's just this tiny um, private boat. And cross-cut with that in the background is a huge military uh, naval ship mm-hmm. that is moving in the opposite direction away from Dunkirk. And you just see this tiny boat in the foreground and that huge looming military vessel in the background moving away from the conflict while they're moving toward it. Mm -hmm. And one of the themes, it's like ominous and striking that they're still setting out on their own and still moving toward a conflict that that vessel is leaving because... It's like a a huge military defeat for them, essentially. Mm -hmm. But they are still making the choice to do what they can as individuals and um, move toward the beach. And I think that's what one of the main questions of the film is, 
it's like in the face of just massive warfare that's taking place between entire nations on a world scale what can one person even do Mm -hmm. there's so many shots that show like one isolated person uh in like an impossible situation and i think the film's answer is that you just do what you can you do anything you can even if it's just like giving a guy a blanket Mm -hmm. and a mug of tea like you're doing something and you have no idea like what effect that will have that could mean all the difference completely and that's i think that's really well illustrated when um jack loudon his plane goes down in the sea he has to ditch his plane and he gets stuck in the cockpit um he can't get his cockpit window open Mm -hmm. and his plane is sinking and this is when he's intersecting with the sea timeline Mm -hmm. and um the son on the ship is telling the father like you know there was no parachute we don't need to bother going to check the wreckage that guy didn't make it but the father um, is like, we need to try. Like, you don't know. Like, we have to try. Mm-hmm. Or something to that effect. And they go there and they, like, of course they rescue him at the last minute mm-hmm. and break open the glass and save his life. And it was just because one person wanted to try to help. <sighs> and it just perfectly illustrates, like, the power <laughs> of just fucking trying. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that shot, if you watch it, Look out for that shot and think about how much meaning is mm-hmm. imbued in that shot of those ships passing. It's, oh, it's so good. Yeah, totally. So this is something we talked about the first time we watched it in mm-hmm. your backyard. As like, I one of the things I like most about this movie is how there's so many different instances of people displaying human decency Mm -hmm. (laughs) and they're all they're i mean some are small but some are big and some are like really really striking and i kept a list i think i wrote down like 12 or so yeah um when i was watching it this last time and it's it's so interesting because some of them are really low effort like there's one instance where um the man that you eventually find out is a french soldier all he does is throw a a rope overboard and Mm -hmm. that saves like two people from drowning um and but in other cases it's like this family stole their own boat so they could go help and it's Mm -hmm. like all of these all of these small and large acts all intersecting um, and working together. Like Tom Hardy, uh, we didn't even talk about him yet. <laughs> he fucking decides to let his plane run out of fuel mm-hmm. so that he can make it to Dunkirk and yeah. actually oh. fucking participate in the fight because like, there's just so much happening before they even get there that it seems like the Royal Air Force isn't helping. But it's just because it's they fucking like don't have the fuel to get there and get back or mm-hmm. I don't know all of the complex reasons for that, but 
he decides to know that he will run out of fuel and still show up anyway. Mm -hmm. And when he gets there, he shoots down a really key plane Mm -hmm. while he has no fuel. And it makes all the difference. It makes a huge difference. Like, it's Mm -hmm. it's in the middle of the evacuation with all of the civilian watercrafts. Yeah. And it, his one decision to run out of fuel and be there made all the difference. Mm -hmm. And he knows it. And it's just, oh, it's so good. It's so perfect. Oh. It's so good. My very favorite, though, my favorite display of of human decency is it's toward the end of the movie where you um you have watched uh, events unfold on the boat where the family has picked up Killian Murphy who was like the lone survivor of his ship sinking mm-hmm. and he's shell-shocked and very distraught that their boat is heading back toward Dunkirk mm-hmm. when he's tried very hard to escape and he ends up uh, inadvertently hurting George, the boy, and eventually we learn that um, George dies from the injuries he sustained to the back of his head in like a, a falling injury, which is fucking, that's so brutal. I cried. Yeah. It's so brutal. And George's friend, the son, um, he he knows that Killian Murphy, you know, has done this. Mm-hmm. But something that his dad, um, Mark Raylance, has been saying to him, you know, in subtle but meaningful ways throughout their, you know, exchanges and dialogue is that you know, Killian Murphy isn't himself. Like, he's been through a horrible thing. Mm -hmm. Like, he's acting out of fear because he's been in an impossible situation. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the... Towards the end of the film, Killian Murphy asks the son, like, oh, is is George going to be okay? While the son already knows that George is dead. Mm -hmm. And the son, like, takes a beat and, you know says something to the effect he I think he just says yes mm. and um spares Killian Murphy the guilt yeah. of his actions yeah. um when he wasn't himself and of course the dad witnesses this exchange and does like a silent nod of <laughs> approval and Aww. it's so it's so beautiful yeah. and good it's so good and then at the end the son goes to the local newspaper and has oh them write up God. an article about George being a hero. <laughs> because all George ever wanted was to do something important and be in the newspaper so his dad could see it. <laughs> oh my God, it's so sad. <laughs> it's I'm so, so sad touched and it's all so good. <laughs> I know. Oh but God. it's like you, like, in terms of their screen time, like, we barely know them. Mm-hmm. But. Everything is so well done that you fucking love them. Mm-hmm. You love that crew. They're so good. Oh, and there's, I could give like a million more examples. And of... I knew from the get go, like immediately as George jumped on that ship, I was yeah. like, that guy's going to fucking die. Oh, that no. guy is going to die, and I'm going to be so sad. Oh, man. 
It's so good. Everything about it. Um, but yeah, no, I highly recommend it. I think about it all the time in terms of, like, when it seems like you're facing an insurmountable challenge. Mm-hmm. You, you think that, you know, unless you can produce some heroic effort, what you do doesn't make a difference. Mm-hmm. But I think in, in a lot of ways this film is telling you that you can make a difference. Yeah. Even though you're just one person and you're just mm. a civilian. Yeah. I feel like you can't talk about this movie without mentioning Harry Styles. Right. His performance, <laughs> which was very good, which was quite yeah. good. It was like a small mm-hmm. part, but mm-hmm. I did very much enjoy it. He did great. Yeah. I mean, I'm not like an acting coach expert, but I thought he did just fine he yeah did good he's his he actually had one of the more dislikable characters mm-hmm. yeah um, in terms of his actions and motivations but he i think he did a really good job yeah i think also the cinematography on the mole is that what that was called mm-hmm. the beach mm-hmm. um oh, those are the most iconic scenes to me those like the when they're all hiding out in that boat and the yeah. gunshots start coming through and they mm-hmm. start getting shot at and it's super scary. Um, yeah. Like the intensity that is built between the cinematography and like the score in those portions and the, uh, I don't even remember where they are, where, the, where they're getting fed and mm-hmm. it's like a boat. Yeah. And they're it's going to yeah. like flood. And yeah. Uh, the the intensity in those moments and like I was just on the edge of my seat during the mole portions and I think mm-hmm. that also having the three parallel plot lines did a very good job of like relieving the tension that is being built on the mole because those mm-hmm. are like very intense very like um just high pressure situations that don't have a Mm -hmm. lot of like relief and i think that that's essential right because yes those people aren't having relief so you can't just Mm -hmm. have relief in those scenes naturally i would say because they are under this constant pressure but then you switch to the c plot line and then you get that relief you get the dynamics of that family and you get some like relief of that tension but then you go back to the pilots and all of the tension there and um Mm -hmm. i think that that just stylistically helps so much to um keep the audience at like a comfortable level of tension throughout the entire movie um because i really cannot stand a movie that like keeps me tense for the entire thing and just has no or like when the relief feels forced, that really also bothers mm-hmm. me. And I think that um, that movie did such a fantastic job of balance, I would say. Mm-hmm. I agree completely, because I too cannot stand like a wall-to-wall ang- angiogenic movie. 
Uh, yeah, like, oh my god, I was sweating buckets in Paris. I, I won't even watch Uncut Gems, because I just know, oh, I know. I'm going to be like, I can't, I can't, I just can't watch someone make decisions like this. Yeah, it's um, bad. And, yeah. yeah, not not that it's yeah. a bad movie, that it's no, just no, like, no. it's really hard for... It <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, but this one, you there are definite um, periods of relief and when things ramp up they often you know they're intercut so that everyone is ramping up together mm-hmm. and so it's not just a, a constant mm-hmm. um switching between uh, very intense things yeah. um the pacing and yeah the rhythm of that is very well done mm-hmm. um and like I said before, like it is well worth watching more than once because mm-hmm. there is like even if you already are like down with the orientation of how things are being presented, mm-hmm. there's contextual information that you get later on in the movie mm-hmm. that when you know it makes previous scenes like even more emotionally impactful mm-hmm. like when you find out that mark Raylance has another son that was an raf pilot mm-hmm. who has was killed in action like you go back to all these previous scenes where he is talking about planes or mm-hmm. talking about we have to go see if mm-hmm. we have to try to help mm-hmm. him oh my god so <laughs> we're obsessed <laughs> oh my god uh. oh so good yeah oh yeah that's a really fantastic movie where did you say that that's streaming right now netflix it's on netflix okay currently netflix um so my piece of uh media this week is a movie called the ghost and mrs mirror (laughs) um (laughs) and this is a movie that i watched growing up my mom really liked this movie and I was actually talking with her this weekend because I watched it with my husband for date night and I just was just kind of feeling like a nostalgic movie mm-hmm. and I told my mom and she was like oh yeah I always had a crush on Rex Harrison and he's the mm-hmm. male lead and um so I guess that's why we watched it so much when I was a kid um <laughs> Because my mom just had a crush. (laughs) But Mm -hmm. um, I really love this movie. It's a a 1947 film. So it's black and white. And Mm -hmm. the leads are Rex Harrison, as I mentioned. And also Jean Tierney is the female lead. And they are just really fantastic. I'll get into their chemistry a little bit later. So the movie is generally... A pretty simple concept. I would classify it as kind of a romantic comedy, but a very, very early romantic comedy. Yes. Oh, Um, I thought it was just a straight drama. Um, it's a little bit drama, but I I think I would classify it more into the romantic comedy realm. I'm really excited to talk about it. (laughs) Um, Tell me. So, the movie was made in 1947, but it's set in the early 1900s. So it's like an old movie that's talking about an even older time, uh, which I didn't pick up on until I most recently watched it. And I really like this film because it was very 
um, feminist for its time. The general concept is that there is this widow. Her name is uh, Lucy Muir. The movie opens in London, and she is sitting with her sister-in-law and her mother-in-law of her late husband. She's sitting with them and telling them, it's really time for me to move out of this house. I'd like to go to the sea, and so my daughter and my maid are going to move with me to Whitecliffe. There's an argument that ensues about this. They're upset that she's taking the daughter with her. Um, they're basically like, how are you ever going to afford to live this life out on your own? And she insists that she will be moving out. She doesn't waver. And I really love that about her. That's a constant theme throughout the movie is that uh -huh. she doesn't really waver in her decisions. She says, this is what I want. This is what I'm doing. I'm listening to what you're saying and I'm acknowledging it. But I won't, I won't change my mind. So she goes to Whitecliff and she meets with a realtor. And this is another scenario in which she's being told kind of what to do and she refuses to take no for an answer. So they're going through the different properties. He has different properties to show her for rental. And she keeps saying no, no. And he flips past one and doesn't mention it. And she picks it up and looks at it. And it's for a listing for Gull Cottage. And she says, this is perfect. This is like the right price. It's enough bedrooms. It's a beautiful property. I'm really excited. I want to see this one. And he says, oh, no, no, that's not for you. Um, and he's being real fishy about it. He's kind of right. saying it's too big of a property for a woman to take care of or something silly like that. And right. she keeps saying, no, this is what I want. And at one point he keeps trying to deflect her into different properties. And she says, listen, if you don't show me this property, I'm going to go around to a different realtor who will show me this property and hopefully they'll rent it to me. And so he's like, you know what? Okay. I will take you over there and uh, we'll look at this property together. So, they go to the property and you find out that the property was once owned by a sea captain. And it's very clear that the realtor is uncomfortable inside of the property. He is right. not thrilled to be there, very reluctant mm -hmm. to go inside. They basically get there and he's like, oh, you, you want to see the inside. Okay. <laughs> and he unlocks the door and starts showing her around, but he's clearly uncomfortable. And then there's this scene that scared me so much the first time I saw it, where Rex Harrison's character starts laughing in this very oh, like God. maniacal way. And the realtor runs down the stairs and out of the house in this very comical fashion and like gets in his car and waits for Gene Tierney outside. And... He's like, you know, that's what I was talking about. So you you don't want this property and we'll go look at something more reasonable now. Mm -hmm. And Lucy still says, no, I, I want this property, even though I might have heard something <laughs> in there. I'm going to I'm going to rent this property. And he goes, OK, I guess so. She has such a clear vision of everything. She I know. Wants. How does she do that? <laughs> I love that about her character, and she talks a little bit about it 
about how her whole life decisions have been made for her. Mm-hmm. She was in a marriage with a man that she liked but didn't really love and there was no passion there. Mm. And now that he's gone, I think she feels this newfound freedom to seek out and explore her own interests and her own life. But um, I sent you a clip from the first night. Oh, that was the first yes. night. So this is the first night that they stay in this house. And Lucy goes down to make water for her hot water bottle. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> and she keeps trying to light a match to light a candle. And it keeps blowing out. She's getting very frustrated and she goes, I know you're here and you're not going to scare me away. So please don't interfere while I make some water for my hot water bottle. And um, Rex Harrison's character, Daniel, says, light the blasted candle. (laughs) And she's like, how can I if you keep blowing it out? Um, Even though Lucy is genuinely terrified and you can see that. She is terrified and trying so hard to pretend like she is not scared of this ghost. She's, like, still very fighty and saying, yeah. like, you gotta let me do this. You gotta you gotta stop scaring me because I'm not going anywhere. Right. When I watched that clip, like, I assumed that was from midway through the movie where they had already had this rapport Mm-mm. established and so she was comfortable being like let me light this fucking candle dude like i'm just trying to do i, I need my hot water bottle <laughs> <laughs> but i didn't know that was their first interaction mm-hmm. and he just like i love that he is just like a straight up guy <laughs> like they don't have ghostly makeup oh, or no. fog yeah. or you know he's not in like flowing robes he's just like a man standing <laughs> in the corner yeah oh my gosh it's so good it's so good i just i love daniel oh my god okay so just to kind of finish up like the movie plot so basically they have this interaction And Lucy says, look, I'm not going anywhere. Um, I'm paying for the property. I'm paying to rent this house. And you're going to let me stay here. Like, confine yourself to one room in the house. Don't bother my daughter. I don't want you to scare her. And, like, we'll just live our own lives. Like, I won't change anything about your house. Like, I'll respect your wishes. But you need to just kind of live in one room. And... He agrees to that and they start to form this like friendship, this bond, and there was an investment that Lucy had been left from her late husband and it was a gold mine and the gold mine stopped producing <laughs> gold. And okay. um, this investment, a gold mine, <laughs> <laughs> gold mine investment. Um, I don't know. I don't know how any of it works. Um, but basically, mm-hmm. there's no more gold. And so Lucy doesn't have any real income anymore. She doesn't have a job. And this was, like, her one thing that was giving her money to rent this house. And so her in-laws come back to tell her the news. And Daniel keeps interfering in this interaction in very mm-hmm. silly ways. And he keeps... <laughs> She keeps talking to him, and she sounds like a legitimate crazy person. Just, like, 
talking to herself or um, telling she'll tell Daniel to shut up and the mother-in-law will think she's talking to her and start crying. Oh, Oh, Lucy. It's very over the top. Um, But basically, Daniel says, listen, we'll figure it out. Don't go back with them. You're unhappy with them. They're horrible people. We'll figure it out. And he suggests that Lucy write a biography of his life called Blood and Swash. Um, <laughs> what? What does that mean? Uh, it's the unfiltered life of a sea captain. Um, wow. I don't know. And um, so she writes this book and she goes to this publisher. Um, at first, he's like, is this another cookbook? Like, you women are always coming in with cookbooks. So there's, like, this distinct, um, it's, like, really showcasing the sexism of the time, right? It's really showcasing, like, what people think of women at the time. And she says it's a biography about a sea captain. And the guy's like, oh, well, maybe I've got time to read your book And they stay in there for hours, and he's obsessed Uh with this book. And um, so then he decides to publish the book, and after the book's publication, they're kind of set. And in the process of meeting with the publisher, the main character, um, Mrs. Muir, meets this man. And he is so skeezy. He's just, like, the most cringe ever. I hate this man. Um, (laughs) And Daniel gets super cranky about it. Um, And he like sits with his arms crossed and he just (laughs) has this pout uh, about it. But he starts to realize that Lucy is developing feelings for this living man and that that is a perfectly normal thing Mm -hmm. that she should be associating with living people and living her life and not associating with the ghost that lives in her bedroom. And so he decides after publishing the book, she's set on money. She doesn't need him. He, while she's sleeping, says, you dreamed this all. You dreamed about the man. You were you were so obsessed with writing the story of this man that owned the house that you dreamed you were having conversations with him. And she believes that it was all a dream. Um, and it's really sad. And I always cry when he does it. And then he like kisses her on the forehead and then disappears for the rest of her life. He just disappears. And then you find out that the love interest character is like a total scumbag. She like, goes to his house and his wife is there and she says um i think i know what's going on i'm really sorry that this has happened to you this isn't the first time that something like this has happened and she's like Uh heartbroken she basically doesn't um fall in love again um and you see her grow older and Eventually, towards the end of the movie, her daughter comes back from college with this boy and she says, we're engaged and she wants her mother's approval and they have him over for tea. And while they're brewing the tea, they have this conversation about um, the sea captain that Anna used to play with. Um, And Anna says, yeah, I used to play with this imaginary 
sea captain when I was a kid. And then one day he just went away and I thought it was because I was growing older and he was bored with me or something. The mother and daughter had never talked about Daniel before this moment. And it was the really? first it was the first validation that Lucy had gotten that Daniel was a real person. And she mm-hmm. basically says, no, no, no. I must have told you about my dream. And then you imagine that you were playing with Daniel and so on and so forth. And um, Anna invites her mother to come live with her and her new husband. And she says, no, no, I'm very attached to Gold Cottage. I don't want to leave. This is my home. And um, she gets older and older and the maid is with her through all of this. They're just two um, very old people live in this house. Um, And eventually you see... Uh, Lucy pass away in her chair very peacefully and Mm -hmm. Rex Harrison shows up and reaches out his hand to pick her up Uh from the chair and they walk down the stairs and pass the maid who doesn't see them and it's Jean Tierney young again and they walk out the front door together and into who knows into eternity and it's just the most satisfying ending because he just was waiting to move on to the next part of his afterlife existence until she passed Mm -hmm. away and he was always there and he was real and she looks so happy to see him and it's just, ah, uh, it's just so, I, I love it. I, like, wanted a romance, like, <laughs> when I was a kid. I was like, Chris <laughs> is romance. the ideal man. <laughs> um, wow. So, it was probably a very long-winded explanation. But, uh, overall, pretty simple con- concept. Um, and the movie does such a good job of playing with, like, the concept of feminism in a very early time um, because Jean Tierney's character is just so strong-willed, I guess, is what mm-hmm. I would say. That's the best way to describe her. I think she's a stronger female character than some female characters in today's movies, honestly. Just like... Oh, absolutely. It sounds that way. It's just so, so strong. And I love that she's like not scared to be alone, right? She... Yeah. Doesn't continue seeking love and she's perfectly content. She's not she's not upset to not have love in her life or not romantic love in her life, right. I suppose. She has a very fulfilled life and she's very happy even though she doesn't have that. And I also just think that the chemistry between Lucy and Daniel is very good. I mentioned that their banter is very good because Lucy's a very strong-willed woman and then Daniel is also equally as strong-willed. <laughs> and um, I just really love that they are this even match for one another. And I think that that's mm-hmm. why they work so well together is because they are this even, stubborn, <laughs> strong set of characters that are not willing to to give the other much of an inch initially. And that's one of the reasons that Rex Harrison actually respects her and decides to uh, 
leave her alone and stop trying to scare her out of his house is because she's such like a different kind of woman and he's very taken by her yeah because he's used to everyone like running away like the realtor Yeah. yeah and most everyone that rents the property doesn't last past that first night that's like his thing is when they come down to the kitchen on the first night (laughs) is he tries to spook him. The old candle (laughs) trick. (laughs) Um, Yeah, they don't make it past the first night, usually. Um, That's awesome. He has a whole routine planned. (laughs) That's excellent. Um, Oh, and also, I really love the Daniel character because he's, like, so silly. He is, like, cranky and gruff, but also... (laughs) Which I love in a man. Um, But also, he has the soft side, and I wish we got to see his interactions with Anna, because I think... the, The daughter, because I think that those would be just so precious. And... Yeah. He didn't have any kids, and I, like, wonder if that's something that he always wanted and he was kind of living vicariously taking care of this woman that he obviously cares deeply about's daughter and uh i love it i love daniel um yeah i think the movie is just really fantastic i highly recommend it even though i told you guys the whole plot um <laughs> yeah I, the one thing that I don't love about the movie is that it implies that the successful book was because of this man, right? It wasn't something that was the brainchild of Mrs. Muir. She was uh-huh. just kind of the messenger. And mm-hmm. I think that that is the one place it falls short, is I kind of wish that they had given her a little more ownership over the book. But, yeah, it's just a really great film. And I think watching that as a young girl, like, I think it's it's a good movie for a young girl to watch and realize that um, independence and, like, the main plot doesn't have to be love, you know? The main plot can right. be, like, finding who you are and being okay with that and love is kind of secondary to it and love can wait until you have reached your full potential I think is kind of what I take away from that yeah that's how I'm so impressed with the, all those themes from 1947 I know that's it's so it's really good definitely a really great nostalgic film for me um and I love a friendly ghost plotline as well. Yes, I know you do. That is one of my favorite tropes, I guess. I uh, really love Casper. Obviously, um, Alec Baldwin and... Um, oh gosh, I forget her name now, but the... Gina Davis? Yes, from Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice. Um, just love that those kinds of friendly ghosts um a good mix of friendly and chaotic ghosts in that movie but yeah i would definitely say the friendly ghost movie we don't have enough 
of those. I know. Opinion. I'm trying to think of other examples. I don't know if I can. I think it's hard to do. Mm-hmm. But I think that they're important, especially for me. I'm so scared by the concept of ghosts in general that, mm-hmm. like, movies about friendly <laughs> ghosts are really good for me because it's like, oh, yeah. well, maybe there's a friendly ghost and they're just, like, bumbling around, hanging out, and they, yeah, they made a fucking noise, but, like, just a friendly ghost. They're not trying to spook you. They're just clumsy. I don't know. I mm-hmm. love it. I would be a clumsy ghost. Um, but... Our friend diagram? Our friend diagram. Um, I think... So you brought up the concept of human decency. Um, mm-hmm. And I really think... Or, or, like, in terms of, like, a selfless act, right? I would say yeah. that there's definitely overlap between... Dunkirk and all of the selfless acts that happen there and all of um, the human decency that is is expressed there and Rex Harrison's decision to do what's best for Lucy and let her live out her living life not believing that he's real and he'll wait for her and Mm -hmm. not let her just live the rest of her life with a ghost that lives in her bedroom. Ghost boyfriend, yeah. He wasn't so lonely that he couldn't put aside that he was limiting her, limiting her ability to live a normal life and definitely did a selfless thing. Mm -hmm. That's the one that comes to mind immediately for me. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison. Yeah, I guess Tom Hardy is the new Rex Harrison. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, there's the sea. There's a sea captain. The sea. There's always the sea. There's a sea captain. <laughs> there, are both, a boat. there are sea captains in both. The yes. most lovable characters in both are both oh sea captains. Oh my god. Yes. That is a fact. That's a straight up fact. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. I think we crushed that that Venn diagram, though. Yeah. I love those. I love those commonalities. (laughs) That was perfect. Thanks for joining us this week on Friend Diagram. Thank you to Tyler Seek for the creation of our intro and outro music. Did you take any of our recommendations? Have any thoughts on the show? Let us know at frienddiagrampod at gmail.com, and we might read your email on a future episode. If you can, please take a moment to rate and review the show on your podcast app of choice, and we'll see you back here, same place, next week. Bye for now.